Good morning. I promise this one will not be 80 minutes. I thank you for bearing with me on my uh, previous ones. Um, I told you that I believe that that was largely a part of uh, over-familiarity with the topic. Um, I didn't know how to cut anything. So this, unfortunately, I am not as over-familiar with as we're uh, going to be dealing with humility today. The title of today's sermon is The Humility of Imitation. Um, we're going to be looking at a lot of texts today, but our primary one is John thirteen fifteen. I encourage you to turn to that. Imitation is something that uh, I think we're all familiar with. Um, there are people that very generously call me creative, uh, and I appreciate the sentiment. Um, but I am not, unless you mean creative as in I create and produce things. Um, I am not a creative person in the originality idea. I am replicative. <laughs> I can replicate things. Uh, and I find a, a great joy in, in doing that. Um, for the, for the layperson, that's called copying. Um, I'm a good copier. That's what I do. Um, I have a lot of interests. Uh, coffee, obviously, a holy item. Carpentry, you know, after Jesus. Um, shepherd, also after Jesus. I like to think that I have holy occupations. Um, <laughs> But I am not uh, creative in those things. I follow in the footsteps of my shepherd. Um, you know, they say that imitation is the uh, greatest form of flattery. Uh, some people agree with that. Um, some the people who uh, have the original idea on Etsy and then other people repost it uh, would not agree with that sentiment. Um, but for me, I like copying. I, I like learning. And that's, that's, that's kind of my what, what makes me tick. I like to learn things. I like to develop skills and practice and problem solve in the sense of figuring out how people do things or with maybe just the tools that I have, uh, whatever it may be. I don't find any innate thing in myself to express myself. That never made sense to me. Um, it seems to be kind of an original thing with, I think, my generation uh, in the self-esteem movement. Uh, they need self-esteem so that they can express themselves. I have nothing to express. It's just, it's just me. Um, you need to, you know, make a really sloppy painting to express yourself. Go for it. Um, I don't get rid of my emotions that way. I don't find my meaning in those creations. Um, that's not me. I like learning and uh, and applying new skills that I learn. And copying is a great way to do that. Um, so, imitation is something that is, is very fundamental to me. Whether it comes from um, art, uh, most of the stuff that I use, I'm reproducing, or, and I, I try to put my own mark, if you will, on it, um, <laughs> primarily for legal reasons. Um, <laughs> it's legal to just copy for copying's sake. Um, so I, I try to tweak things and make it my own. Uh, when it comes to music, for the most part, I play what the track does. Um, most of them are all better than me anyway, so, and it's their song, so I'm not really going to make it my own. Um, although we had a nice melancholy version of uh, All-Star after practice today on the acoustic. It was pretty good. Um, I, don't, I don't do that. I'm a copier by nature. That's what I do. So I don't know if you uh, feel the need to express yourself or if you, like me, are a copier. Uh, but the question of copying when it comes to Jesus is an important question, right? It's one thing for me to look at Norm Abrams, the master carpenter, right? It's one thing for us to look at a great artist like Michelangelo. It's one thing to look at a great dancer like I don't know um, and, uh, and say I'm going to aspire to that. Let me practice and get better and ultimately try to equal them in their talent versus looking at Jesus who as we saw last week is the divine God and man. How do I aspire to something that I am wholly not or am I? And that's part of the question of what we're working through this past week and this week is he took on our nature, right? We became, became the same nature as God, at least in part. And so if we're going to aspire to imitating God, we need to understand why, first of all, um, and then how. And my goal this week is to teach you, or hopefully, most of the why. Uh, in the following two weeks, we're going to be talking about the how. Um, I'm going to allude to some pieces of it this week just for sake of consistency. Um, but we want to talk about why. Why do we imitate God? Why is God worthy of imitation? Why should we, as humans, as created beings, try to imitate the divine God, but also man? 
And what does it take for us to really understand what right imitation is? And so, first of all, to help us frame this rightly, we've got to, got to, got to remember last week. In fact, the, the first point of today uh, is entirely a callback to last week. Because if we don't set this week's why inside the framework of last week, we're going to completely miss the point. And so, just a reminder of last week, one of Matt's quotes from a commentator was this. It says, my fundamental point is that what we need and what the New Testament offers us is first and foremost, not an example, but a Savior. It goes on to say that the major danger of imitation themes is that they tend to obscure that fundamental point. And so any exclusive focus on the example of Jesus effectively truncates the genuine gospel. And that is largely the, the, the problem that we have, the challenge that we have, and is what we hear in our culture, is that we've got to imitate him. He is a good teacher, he is a good moral person, and so we should just listen to his, his teachings. The Sermon on the Mount. Those kinds of things that are moral in nature that we can imitate or at least try to apply to our life to make us, ideally, better people, they and we would say. But that's not the primary point. First of all, from the side of our need, as we saw last week, we need a Savior. There's a great need that we have that we cannot fill. It's not a matter of trying harder. It's not, a, it's not an issue of talent or giftedness. It doesn't matter if you are the master carpenter, the master painter, the master dancer. You still cannot fulfill your need when it comes to the issue of a Savior. The second that we saw is that the New Testament exclusively offers us a Savior. There's no other thing it offers to fill. Nothing that we can come up with. Nothing that we can say that we need more. The primary point, the primary push of Scripture is that it offers us a Savior. You see, the Jews wanted a king, right? A king alone. Is Jesus only a king? No. He came as the king, but as the Savior. That is what Scripture offers us. And so for us to then take simply the other aspects of Jesus, as we're going to talk about today, and even as we see simply in Matthew, where the Jews wanted a king, and say that is what is primary. To make that a fundamental point is to obscure the gospel. And so the danger today when we talk about imitation for a very good reason is that we are going to slowly allow the imitation to creep to the point of primacy. And that's why we had that last week as a matter of setting the foundation for us today. So, the key for us today is to remember that sanctification, which is the entire point of our imitation, must never be reduced to our own moral effort. We start with the Savior, and that is where we stay grounded. Justice said last week, you know, even the thought that we could actually do as Jesus would do is rather intoxicating. It's, it's prideful in nature. You can imitate Jesus. But we shall surely fail utterly at our best efforts to follow in Jesus' footsteps, except insofar as the Spirit enables us. So our task today is to look at two sides of the same coin. Imagine on one side, you have this. Humility is required to imitate rightly. Humility is required to imitate rightly. And then on the other side, humility is the design of imitation. Humility is the design of imitation. So first, let's look at the, the, the one side. Point number one, you must humble yourself to imitate rightly. You must humble yourself to imitate rightly. The majority of the week I was looking at a different passage to preach on. Um, I was trying to shy away from this one and just wanted to use this as an example. Uh, but Matt kind of pushed me on this. And uh, the reason I wanted to stay away from this is because it's narrative. And also because I'm preaching an implication of the, not technically an implication of the text. And we're not going to be expositing the whole story of the foot washing. Uh, we're going to be talking about an implication. Some would argue the primary point, but you can't really get there unless you exposit the whole piece. 
But I wanted to actually use this uh, one because he challenged me to it, uh, but also because I think the, the position and the idea of humility is so fundamental to this idea of imitation uh, that the other passage didn't really push that rightly. And so from here, in John 13, 15, we need to understand that you must humble yourself to imitate rightly. So if we're going to keep the majors the majors, then we have to recognize the gospel as saving first. So the, the point of last week uh, is really all of point one right here. We have to admit to needing saved. We have to admit to needing saved. And that requires humility. Now it could be humility with something else. If you think about the idea of drowning, it could be humility with fear. Fear is what causes us to see that we are insufficient, and that is what then allows for humility. Right? Yesterday we were leaving Lowe's, and uh, I had this big cart of wood. I'm making coffee boxes. And uh, the girls are behind me, and Avery's supposed to be putting on her jacket. Well, I go ahead and push on out, thinking Adeline's going to follow me, and she stops at the first double door, and it's like, you shall not pass. And she's freaking out, like freaking out. I'm leaving her. Her life is over. She's going to be an employee at Lowe's forever, which is okay because I'll see her often. Um, so it's an it's a okay deal with me. And I might get a discount even more than my credit card. So, um, no, she's, she's losing her mind. Like, I, I've not seen her melt down that quickly. And it wasn't like a tantrum style. It was just like fear. And she's like, but Avery, but Daddy, but Avery, but Daddy, but door, right? And th- that's what's going on. And so she recognized then that, well, Daddy was leaving, the boat was leaving, um, and she was drowning in the moment. And so it could be fear is, is what leads us to see our need, right? I'm like, Adeline, it is an automatic door. It will not crush you. Um, you're okay. So trying to get her through that was, was a little difficult at first. And you have to go and scoop her up, right? And it's the help idea of last week, right? The help to seize and to do it for you. And that's what I had to do in the moment. I had to carefully pivot my cart so that I didn't go kill a truck. Um, it started rolling away, so I was like, I'm coming for you. Just kidding. Fix. I'm still coming for you. Uh, so that did traumatic damage. Um, but you had to seize her to, to take hold of, to firmly grasp, and I did it for her. That was the help. But it could be other things that, that show us our need of humility. Um, fear is, is a common one, but suffering is too, right? Suffering is something that we're going to touch on later and was actually the primary passage I wanted to use originally in 1 Peter chapter 2. But this idea of suffering helps us see our need for something. Um, in one case, it's fear. In another, it's, it's pain. Now, there's, there's so many other different things that can lead us to this idea of humility, but we have to admit to needing saved, and that requires humility. And so if we're going to talk about imitation, we have to be humbled. You think about it this way, in the humility of Christ, and we often use Philippians 2 for this, but think about it this way. Uh, One commentator that I pulled from, it said, in the wonder of his self-giving love, Jesus stoops to the cross, and as God's Passover lamb, he submits to slaughter on our behalf to wash us clean from all our moral filth and guilt. And so the question then becomes, has Christ washed us? And how that happens is illustrated in our primary text, which we'll get to in a minute. But like Peter, as long as we imagine we can get by without Christ's cleansing, we cannot be saved. Pride must perish. We are helpless sinners for whom no amount of good works, religious exercises, or even Christian ministries can atone. Only the blood of Christ can save us. His sacrifice offered for us on the cross and received by an act of simple, personal faith. And so we come to Christ and allow Him to wash us. There is literally no sin which He cannot cleanse in this way. All guilt can be forgiven. Even sins we would be ashamed to admit to any other person. As 1 John 1, 7 would say, the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. So if we're even going to touch on this idea of imitation, we have to be humble to understand that we need a Savior. And only then can we begin imitation at all. Because if we are not humble first and are seeking to imitate Christ, then all of our works are not for the purpose of sanctification, but for the purpose of self-righteousness. 
All of our works are for the purpose of self-righteousness if we're not humble. But if we humble ourselves, then our acts after that are purely humble. They're to no avail of ours as far as salvation is concerned. Later we're going to talk about what value they are to God. But if we're not humble first, then everything that we do in trying to imitate Christ becomes self-righteousness. And we'll see that in the next, in the next section. So that, that's the starting point. That's one side of the coin. Um, and yeah, we're, we're moving, so I'm pretty happy. Um, point two, this is the bulk of what we're going to discuss. Imitation is not about the product, but rather the attitude. So earlier I defined it as humility is the design of imitation. Imitation is designed to bring about humility. The point is not simply to emulate Jesus' actions. When we think about the Pharisees doing this, particularly of the Old Testament at least, but then we have multiple denominations that simply imitate actions of Jesus. So you have just people doing a 40-day fast. Why are you doing a 40-day fast? Because Jesus did. Okay? You're going out to the desert too? Satan hounding you? Are you going to throw yourself off a building? You just simply... What does that do? What's 40 days of fasting do? Can it, be, can it be spiritual? Can it be healthy? Yeah. It's a great act of devotion, if you will. But why? What, what, is, what, is, what is propelling that? And I come from a school that I'm less and less inclined to call my own, uh, Liberty. And uh, the, the, the better leader of the time, this better not get back to them while I'm still in the program, um, Dr. Falwell, the first, uh, did three 40-day fasts. Like, that's intense, except for Diet Coke, okay? Which, sure, I wouldn't be able to give up coffee for 40 days. Um, You wouldn't be able to let me give up coffee for 40 days. Uh, He did three 40-day fasts. And Dr. Falwell, I disagree with him on many things, uh, but agree on a lot. He's a great man of faith, a great man of faith. But why do we simply do that? You have then the Roman Catholic Church who one day a year does a foot washing for the poor, right? Cardinals and bishops and whatever other robe people do a foot washing for the poor people one day. And then they do it again the year later. Are we supposed to emulate his healing? Are we supposed to emulate his prayer? Are we supposed to just imitate what he does? I would say no. But... There are some things that we should imitate that are specific actions that he did. But the point is not just what he did. It's not about the product. It's rather the attitude. The point is attitude. Now, one of the challenges from our text, again, like I said, that we're using today is that there's a specific context to what's going on in this narrative. When we do narrative preaching, you're dropping into context, maybe even more so than epistles, right? Because we're entering into a story specifically. So the question then is at what level can we or even should we derive implications that are prescriptive in nature for us? So simply because Jesus does foot washing or even says as an example, does that mean that we are to do that? And, and if yes, how? And if no, why not? And, and what other things can we pull from that? Right? So we're going to have to do some biblical theology to see if the evidence points to actions or if it points to attitudes. I want to be fair here. I want you to see why I'm saying attitude is what the heart is. And then we can see what, spoiler alert, the attitudes are and determine what the principle is pointing to. Normally when we preach, the idea is to simmer all week, cook, create this nice meal, present it to you guys, let you feast and enjoy God's word. Um, I've got raw materials today right here, all right? We're going to do some cooking with me just like Adeline does. Adeline cooking right now is like the greatest thing ever because I don't have to go to the fridge anymore. Um, they don't have to bend over. don't have to do nothing. don't have to search for anything. Uh, she'll find it. I say, go bring me the milk. It's heavy. Okay, the first time, um, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Uh, she lugs the milk over, right? <laughs> Gives it to me. Uh, can you get the eggs? Dangerous. She's good at it, all right? Goes, gets the eggs for me, awesome. She comes up on her chair, and then um, I just have the vacuum cleaner ready because we did flour, and it was the first snow. Um, But she cooks with me, and it's fun. It's good to do that together. And so this week, I want you guys to cook with me, all right? We're going to look at the 
at the Bible and, and do some biblical theology on what imitation looks like. All right. So what are the grounds then for imitation specifically and then imitating Christ? So let's begin with imitating Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, 6-7, it says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. This is Paul talking to the Corinthians, and this would be our Old Testament biblical theology, if you will, right? In 1 Corinthians 10, he's referring back to the Israelites, particularly as they wandered after their idolatry. And he said, These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. It's a call for imitation, right? It's not just a call for imitation in the present. It's a call to look back at the history of God's people and do not do like they did. Now, are there things that we can and, and, and would even be good things to imitate from them? Yes. David had many. David also had many that we should not. Right? But what does what's the point of the Old Testament? What's the point of Israel in the Old Testament? What's the point of the first Adam, he did not fulfill the law rightly. And so when we look at Jesus, he's the new Adam. He's the second Adam. He's the new Israel. And he fulfills it rightly. So we look at the Old Testament and we say, do not do as they did. And that's what Paul says here. If we want to look at the Old Testament again from the perspective of Jesus himself, we look at Luke twenty four twenty seven, and it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the things in the Old Testament that are good likely are the things referring to himself, right? And so we have some tie back then to the Old Testament. It's not just a New Testament concept of imitation. We see it clearly reaching back all the way to the first Adam. So to bring it into the New Testament, if we're again talking about imitating Christ specifically, we have our text today, John 13, 15. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Okay, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. We've used this a lot, even since last year. I, I used this during Christmas last year. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Multiple points of callback to imitation there. Comparison and contrasting, not for the sake of showing a difference, for the sake of showing what we're supposed to attain to. First Peter 2, 21-23, the text I wanted to use this week. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Lastly, as far as imitating Christ is concerned, we have, of course, Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we're just going to talk about 4 through 6a. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he. We see it turning our attention to the example. Have this attitude in mind of Jesus, who, though he. Talking about and turning our attention to the example of Christ. So there's clear measure for us to imitate Christ. So let's look at a second component to it. How, how does Scripture then call us to imitating Christ when it's not as explicit? You have these basically four words. You have just as, you have as, you have also, and then you have to. Like you too, T-O-O. For example, Matthew 20, uh, 26-28 says, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. 
even as, so as, right, as your comparison point, as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Another example from John 13, verse 34, says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as, just as I have loved you. You also, so we have another one there, are to love one another. You see these tie-back words that he's using? The point is not to create a contrast for contrast's sake. The point is to call us to something. And finally, using these transition words, you look at Romans chapter 6, verse 10-11. through 11. It says, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, so that's, the, that's the style that Scripture uses and calling us to imitation, not when it's explicitly uh, imitate me. It's not just a simple command, but you have this very implied but still rather explicit um, call to imitation. Finally, the third component, we, we see imitation of leaders. You should imitate leaders. I'll take you first to 1 Peter 5.3. In, in charging the elders and talking to the elders, Peter says this, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Well, what's the point of an example? All right, you're in math class. What's the first thing he does? He teaches, and then you get an example problem, right? Are you supposed to do the example problem? No, you observe. Then what do you do? You do likewise. You don't watch the example and then say, that's cool. I'm going to do it this way. That doesn't work. The point of examples for us is to observe and then do likewise. So, for Peter, he's charging the elders to be examples for the purpose of the flock observing and doing likewise. Very explicitly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.16, he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. Hebrews 13.7, as you all know, he says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. 2 Thessalonians 3.7 For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. The implication is that they were busy being examples when they were with them. And so now you know how you ought to imitate because you saw it. Philippians 3.17 Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So imitate me and keep your eyes on those who do likewise. And finally, 1 Timothy 1.6 But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What a great picture to, uh, that I wanted to use to close up this, this point. It's not just imitate me and my personality, the things that I like to do, all that. That's not what we're talking about. Hopefully, I think these already have been pointing to attitudes. Right? You have the idea of suffering in 1 Peter. You have the idea of gentleness in 1 Peter 5, not domineering, but being examples. You have the idea of faith, steadfastness, imitate their faith. It has very little to do with personality. It has very little to do with things that they enjoy doing. The point is to imitate an attitude. And so, for leaders, the call is to have attitudes worth imitating, to follow after Christ. And when I or Matt or other leaders follow after Christ, we're not, again, as much as I enjoy the activities that Jesus did. I'm even learning magic, so that can be my version of miracles. Um, as much as I enjoy doing what Jesus literally did, the point is not that. The point is the attitude. The point is learning who he is and his character. Because that's what we preach, and that's what we live, is the character of God. And so for Paul writing to Timothy, his protege, he says, I received mercy for this, this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal 
Like, Paul does not get it right. He says it most of the time. He's saying, I'm not the greatest. I am the foremost of sinners. But God gave me mercy so that people could see as an example the patience that God has on me, the foremost of sinners. It's incredible. Well, I hope you can see through those passages. We just, we just cooked a meal together. Good job. Um, 350 for 15 minutes. Good job. It's done. Take it out, and hopefully we can enjoy this meal for the rest of the time. We see that all of these things point to the attitudes, right? There are specific things to do, but that's not the point. The point is attitudes. So we consider our primary text. Open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to John 13. Again, we're not going to treat the whole passage, so we'll start in verse 12. Hopefully you're familiar with what's going on in the passage. Starting in verse 12, it says this, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So this is my nerdy piece for the week, all right? And, but it's for good measure, trust me. Uh, Andreas Kostenberger, some of you guys are familiar with him, particularly for his marriage uh, writings, I think, um, says this. Jesus' teaching style here in this passage follows the rabbinic pattern, the rabbi's teaching style, of, ready, mystifying gesture, question, interpretation, right? So the, the question is, do you understand what I've done for you, or to you? And then he explains it, right? But first, you have this mystifying gesture, and it is mystifying indeed, right? I mean, how many of you have ever been a part of a foot washing before? Raise your hands high. Okay. How many have not? Half and half. Okay. Um, how many of you have been part of multiple foot washings, not just one random one? Okay, so most of you that said yes, it was just one. Okay. Um, I mean, apart from Peter's attempt to prevent Jesus from washing his feet, right? No, 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 you, you're not going to wash my feet and then wash all of me. Um, the foot washing was carried out, as far as we know, in embarrassed silence, right? And for those of you that raised your hand, you've been a part of it, I, unless there was someone awkwardly playing guitar, right? Um, <laughs> It was probably just kind of awkward, right? Silent. And what does Jesus do? <laughs> He's okay with the silence. And, and from the passage, it says, the reason we started in verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. All right, so you've got the disciples at the table, right? as we see in the, the painting, because he was there. Um, they're there, and uh, he goes and he washes. He takes off his outer garments, right? Puts on the towel, washes, washes, washes. Peter argues, washes, 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 washes. Gets up, been on his knees for a while. You, even if you're like a catcher, right? You, it, you've been on your knees, it's going to hurt. So he gets up, comes over, gets rid of the towel, puts on his outer garment, fixes his belt, walks back around the table, Sits down, probably takes a drink, I would. Do you understand what I've done to you? No, awkward. I mean, that, that's the scene here. But I think the question is so helpful and humiliating us. Do you understand what I have done to you? A.W. Pink says this, do you understand what I've done to you? This is a question which we should often put to ourselves respecting what our Lord says and what he does. None of his works to us, or at all, are the unfruitful works of darkness. They are all full of meaning. They're all intended to serve a purpose and a good one. And it's of importance in most cases that we should be aware of it.
Do you understand what I've done to you? This is a question we need to ask all the time. One of the greatest things for me in adoration, uh, as we talk about this Acts method of praying, is to recognize how woefully unaware I am of the movement of God in my life and the people around me and our country and, and everything. I, I see a great deal of what God is doing in my life. Most of it, as the as the disciples are gonna, or as Jesus is gonna say here later in this chapter, um, I'm doing this now so that after the day, you'll understand. And and indeed they do. After he's resurrected, they look back and they start putting all the pieces together. And so th- there are, there are many things that I recognize that God does, but I am woefully ignorant of the great many mercies and graces that God has, and, and just his general grace to all people. It's common grace to all people, let alone special grace to us, believers. He's so big, and and every part of that is a good thing for us because it's for his glory. None of it, as he says, are the unfruitful works of darkness. That's humiliating. That's humbling. No, I, I don't understand what I've done to you. you know, what, what you've done to me. Peter certainly may, plays our role in that, right? What are you doing? Why are you washing my feet? You, you can't wash my feet. Peter, if, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Wash all of me. <laughs> wash it all. I want to be part of you. And so what's the point of this foot washing? We're not going to expose the whole text. This is hopefully going to sum up all of that so we can talk about the attitude aspect. J.C. Ryle explains it this way. He says, It is inconsistent with the general, general tenor of our Lord's teaching to suppose that he would ever attach so much importance to a mere bodily action. It's not just the foot washing. He says in 1 Timothy 4.8, Bodily exercise profiteth little. A formal performance of bodily acts of religion is just the easiest thing that can be imposed on people. The thing that is really hard and yet always required is the service of the heart. And so we look at this passage and we, we see what's going on. Do you understand what I've done to you? I, I, I don't. And you explain it to me and that's helpful. Um, but I don't always see what, you, what you're doing. And I, don't, I certainly don't understand it. And so humility then becomes the road to imitation. The saving example, most commentators, and I agree, when you look at John 13, the point is not what's going on at the Last Supper. The point is not the foot washing. It is entirely soteriological. It is entirely wrapped around salvation. This point of washing is a preamble to the cross. And so the point is not to institute foot washing. The point is cleansing. And the way to cleansing is humility. Humility on the part of the God-man who humbles himself to do the cleansing, first in this manner, and then to the extreme on the cross, and then for the recipients of such grace to humble themselves to receive. D.A. Carson says, Little becomes Jesus' followers more than humility. Christian zeal, divorced from transparent humility, sounds hollow. Even pathetic. The heart of Jesus' command is a humility and helpfulness towards brothers and sisters in Christ that may be cruelly parodied by a mere rite of foot washing that easily masks an unbroken spirit and a haughty heart. It's so easy for us to just go through the acts, the process. It's so easy for us to just do the actions, to imitate the actions. As if that is what makes us more pious. And for many people, it can. It can cover what's really going on in the heart. Some pious actions, a 40-day fast, a certain amount of prayer, reading your Bible through eight times in a year, whatever it may be, can mask what's going on inside. And while leaders specifically are supposed to have discernment for the flock, but even then the body as they care for each other should have discernment, If they simply have a sheep's clothing on, it's very hard to see their true nature. 
J.C. Ryle goes on, and, and I love his books on the Gospels. They're so helpful for devotions. But he says this on this passage. He says, How entirely the passage overthrows the claim of mere talking had learned professors of sound doctrine. To be accounted true Christians, it is needless to show those things. Doctrinal orthodoxy without practical love and humility is utterly worthless before God. Doctrinal orthodoxy, we just talked about that a ton last weekend, right? Without practical love and humility is utterly worthless before God. Why? Because that's the self-righteousness. So don't get lost in what we're doing here today. Don't forget the first side of the coin. We have to be humble to salvation first. I mean, we think about what's going on here. We, we didn't read this section, but above, it talks about Judas. Judas is a, a part of the company sharing the meal here. And he's among then the feet of those who Jesus washes. That's awkward. It's one thing to do, you know, Peter being a goofball, but also all of us. Um, and then, you know, James, John, Judas, and then Bartholomew, right? I mean, you keep moving down the line, you get the Judas, and it's like, I mean, if I'm Peter, I'm like, the guy's shady. That's all I know, all right? He's shady. All right? He keeps to himself. He's got the box. For some reason, we always have less money than I thought we had. Um, he's just shady. I don't know that Satan's, you know, got him, but uh, shady dude, right? Jesus is washing his feet, and Peter's like, man, that guy's going to repent soon, right? Um, that's, that's where we're sitting, right? Judas is there, but his heart, however, obviously, as we know, is elsewhere, right? It's been invaded by Satan. And scripture doesn't take responsibility away from Judas. He basically gave himself over because he closed his heart to the light. And so Judas found himself then a servant of darkness. And so you can't get a greater warning than this. Not all who profess to follow Jesus are truly his own. Even some who receive the outward washing of Christ are still unwashed in heart. Well, this is obviously applicable to the Christian sacraments. When we look at the ordinances of the church, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? They are grace-giving, but not in a, sac- in, a, in a salvific sense, right? They're reminders of the grace we received. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, while they're powerful means of grace to the committed, cannot in themselves impart salvation. The Roman Catholic stance of, of communion giving salvific grace. And from others who would say that baptism is what regenerates us. Neither of those are the case. They cannot in themselves impart salvation. Satan is ever seeking hearts which have closed themselves to the light. Here you have Judas, receivers of the first communion, feet washed by Jesus himself, and his heart is as far away from Christ as he could possibly be. So you have that example. And on the other hand, we have this idea of humility as the rest of the apostles uh, were subjected to. Humility is a universal Christian virtue. And it should be expressed through sincere and costly service of others in Christ's name. Christian churches and fellowships are possible only where this attitude is expressed. They have no promise of permanence where it's lacking. And our, our world is desperately seeking for the secret of community that this passage speaks most powerfully to. Our world is desperately in search of the secret sauce that creates community. That was originally the point of social media, right? That's what sports are. That's what most clubs are. That's what politics are. Finding those like-minded people so that we can be community together. But it's not real community. You see, in this passage, we have this personal charge and we have this communal charge. And we cannot separate the personal aspects from the communal. The world tries to tenaciously, right? It just wants the community. It just wants the communal. Love each other. Be examples to each other. And do, the, do likewise. Have the same mind. All of these things together, right? 
But when Paul talks about having those things, it's all grounded in what? The mind of Christ and the gospel and the grace and mercy shown to you through the cross. And our culture and we sometimes try to excise that from this idea of community. We want to go through the actions, imitate the actions so that we can achieve the the desired result. But we cannot divorce it from the personal expression, the personal aspect of this. And the impersonal aspect is the gospel. Humility to see your need. And that's what allows for true community. There might for a time have some semblance of community, but if we do not have the attitude that is brought about through the gospel, it will have no lasting permanence. See, it's those who have been humbled at the cross and come to Christ as helpless sinners seeking his cleansing who are the raw material, if you will, of the community of humble servants. The cross is both the way of salvation and the key to community. As this is expressed even in your house gatherings. If there's a lack of community in your house gathering, it's likely this. Part of why I've got us going the Acts route is because of the aspect of adoration and confession. I think we're decent at Thanksgiving. I know we're very good at supplication. Adoration and confession, those first two parts that we did, very challenging, I think, to most of us and to me often. Putting myself aside so that I can adore the king of the universe reminds me that I'm not the center of the universe. And starting there is hard. Having done that, I'm able to see that and then confess rightly the sin that I have. Then I thank God for the provision for that sin. I thank Him for answered prayers before I ask Him for new things. Then I give Him my supplications. So often we just launch into thanksgiving just to make sure that we cover our bases so that we're not selfish in our supplication. Starting with adoration helps us recognize that the cross is the way of salvation and key to community. And so if we want community in our house gatherings, one of the greatest ways is to recognize the personal aspect. Our house gatherings are great, great opportunities to practice the actions of community. Right? Hospitality. Hospitality is a huge part when we talk about humility, right? When we talk about hospitality, you've got then uh, sharing together. You've got committedness. People are there every week, which is not seen hardly anywhere else in this, in this culture unless you're getting a paycheck. So that's awesome. You guys are incredibly committed to your house gatherings. That's a huge, huge action. If it doesn't feel like real community, it's because of the personal aspect of that. And that's why we're, we're pushing this, this prayer thing. I wanted to work through that together. Because if you start adoring God together and then confessing your sins in the community, now you're vulnerable. Now you're humbled. Now you can have real community. I, I get it. I would rather be at our, I don't know what our worst house gathering is. We don't rank them. I don't want you to freak out. There's no competitions. The only competition is that uh, renovation at night, all right? And I don't know that that's a competition anymore. Um, I'm just kidding. They keep winning. Uh, they're cheating now, but, you know, they keep winning. Uh, I would rather be at our worst, whatever our worst house gathering is, and enjoy that than, than many other Sunday schools house gatherings in our, in our area. I get that. That's not the standard. That's not what we're pushing for. What we're pushing for is real community. Better community. Sanctifying community. And so when we start to recognize the personal aspect of humility and not just do the communal piece, that's when we actually have permanent and real community together. So how do we get there? Well, you look at our passage here, and I think one of the primary expressions of our personal, if we're going to talk about the personal aspect, submission to Jesus as our Lord is our willingness to allow him to be our teacher. It says, you call me Lord, right? Peter does that earlier. Sorry, that's, that's the one thing we're assuming here. Earlier, he says, you're Lord, right? And he says, you're right. Yeah, I am your Lord and teacher. And so we have to submit to him as our 
Lord by our willingness to allow him to be our teacher. So in practice, this means this. The unreserved submission of our minds to his truth, allowing his words, standards, values, attitudes, commandments, example, and teaching to rule our thoughts and determine our convictions. Let me read that again. You heard it, now you can write pieces of it. In practice, if we're going to allow him, if you will, to be our teacher, it means this. Unreserved submission of our minds to the truth. What's the truth? Allowing his words, his standards, his values, his attitudes, his commandments, his example, and his teaching in general. To do two things, to rule our thoughts and to determine our convictions. Guys, simply, if Jesus is not our teacher, he's not our Lord. I was caught up in that for a long time. I was caught up in that for a long time. I, I, well, I believe that I'm, I proclaim him as my Savior, but I'm still working on the Lord part. I'm submitting myself to him. No. There's no one and not the other. It's both. He's teacher and Lord. Lord is what makes him teacher. Teaching is what allows you to call him Lord. So how does this play out specifically for us? J.C. Ryle says this, It's easy work comparatively to care for the poor. We are to be ready to do the least acts of kindness to our equals quite as much as to the poor. There is nothing here about temporal poverty in this passage. Rather, the disciples, disciples were told their duty to one another. This is a very important point. It is much easier and more self-satisfying to play the part and do the work of a Christian to the poor than it is to our equals. Yeah. <laughs> when we do it for the poor, we're not really humbling ourselves. We're serving them by giving of our excess in most cases. But when we serve our equals, when we think about this tier, the strata that we put ourselves in. You can't really give of your excess to an equal because they're equal. They have the same excess. And so to serve them, you have to place yourself under them. It's a lot easier comparatively. Some still can't, but it's comparatively. It's a lot easier to care for the poor. But the work of a Christian is to serve each other. Augustine says this, This, blessed Peter, is what you... I'm going to use his language, forgive me. This, blessed Peter, is what thou didst not know when thou wert not allowing it to be done. When Peter said, no, you will not wash me. This is what he promised to let you know afterwards when your master and your Lord, I love this line, terrified you into submission and washed your feet. See, we learn here, brothers, humility from the highest. Let us, as humble, do to one another what he, the highest, did in his humility. God alone, to his creation, is the rich to the poor. The God-man becoming equal with us in a sense of nature does to one another, placing himself under. Peter didn't want it to be done. And I love this line. He terrified him into submission. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Lord, wash all of me. That's a terrifying prospect. He terrified you into submission and he washed your feet. What we learn here is that humility from the highest, let us as humble do to one another what he, the highest, did in his humility to us. So, again, if we're going to work backwards just to catch us up, humility should be sincere and costly. The service of others in Christ's name. It should be primarily expressed by our willingness to submit ourselves to Christ as teacher. Right? And in doing so, we have the same mind of him then because we submit ourselves to his truth from all those things, his words, standards, values, attitudes, commandments, example, and teaching. It rules your thoughts. It determines your convictions. Then you serve one another. 
A.W. Pink says again, he says this, We take it that the force of these words of Christ is this, I have just shown you how spiritual love operates. I've just shown you how spiritual love operates. It always seeks the good of its objects and esteems no service too lowly to secure that good. It always seeks the good of its objects, of others. And there's no service too lowly that we could consider to secure that good for others. That's what true, real, spiritual love is and how it works. If we're going to be humble, we're going to imitate Christ rightly, it will bring about humility. You cannot rightly imitate Christ and not arrive to a point of humility. It doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter how much effort. If you don't have the first side of the coin taken care of, you don't see your need for a Savior and put away self-righteousness, self-atoning work, then all imitation will lead to further and deeper arrogance, self-sufficiency, and pride. So, imitation sets the heart in a posture of humility, then allowing, point two, the right attitudes to be produced. I say the right attitudes. We saw earlier, some of the other ones alluded to different aspects. We see that it's not simply the actions, right, from our biblical theology, but it's not just humility. But I think humility is the primary piece. Again, verse Peter, uh, chapter 2, that I wanted to use, speaks, and this is the second most common one, is suffering. He talks about suffering. For this, for to this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, an example for suffering, so that you might follow in his steps. In suffering, he committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Such a, a key piece here, I can't leave you guys without. Pride says, I'm the most offended party. Pride says, I'm the one who needs to seek vindication, justice, whatever it might be. Jesus, of course, was without fault. And did he seek his own justice? Did he seek his own vindication? No. Entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's humility overriding, overarching all of this suffering. That's why I think humility is one of the primary pieces. But we see it in other aspects. Suffering, endurance, joy. All of these things are things that we imitate Christ in, not just the actions, the attitude. And so, I think uh, for me what was helpful most about this this study, this sermon, is recognizing a lot of these these different pieces of how all these things where I might struggle in these subcomponents of, for instance, suffering reveals a lack of humility. As me as the most offended party, or me as the one who's most wrong, Jesus didn't have that view, and he was certainly wronged. And what did it reveal? It revealed humility, trusting his need for a Savior, the one who judges justly. So the, the last question I think that leaves us with today is one we talked about at the beginning. If I'm imitating Christ, I'm going to fail. I, I, I just admitted that this is a practice that I can use to expose failure in myself, Right? So, what quality is my imitation? Why am I imitating? One, because it's a command. Two, because it's a huge component of our sanctification, right? But we have to have attitudes of humility. We have to have attitudes of accepting suffering. We have to have attitudes of joy. All of these things 
Why? <laughs> How? Because I can't imitate rightly. In my woodshop, if I have all the right tools, actually, and if I have even some of the right talents and skill sets, I'm still not going to exactly produce the same thing that I'm trying to copy, right? So why do it? Will my wife still like it, even if I don't get it exactly right? We need to find that in this imitation, we need to find this, this freedom, if you will, as I like what Calvin calls it, this freedom to serve God in imitation and not worry about the results. Why are we not worried about the results? Because it's the attitude that he's concerned about. It's because it's the attitude that changes us. We need to be able to serve freely without worrying about if our results look just right. This is something that we try to work on in Sip and Scripture, just because I go first, and I've got a lot of experience just expositing Scripture off the cuff. I should. I'm supposed to, right? And then we go around the table, and you try to do likewise, and inevitably someone always like, well, how am I supposed to follow that? You're supposed to try. It's the attitude. I don't care if you miss a point. I do care if you get it really wrong. We'll talk about that. But try. It's the attitude. Learning God's character. Practicing these things. And it's such a great joy to me when you try. Those of you that have been there know what I'm talking about. It's awesome. It's such a good time. And so Calvin, I'm still a lot of this from him. I'm imitating Calvin by just saying his words. Um, Talks about it from the father perspective. And and I don't like to set great barriers between those that are without children and and even those that are not married. I don't think that's helpful. But there is such an aspect of fatherhood um, that is at play here. But fortunately, in most cases, I shouldn't say that. I'm sorry. All of you have a a father. Um, Mixed results. I get that. I'm sorry. I often forget that perspective. Uh, I was incredibly blessed by my father. Um, I think you can get the point here. Let's look at this. We can serve God freely and boldly. Even though our consciences accuse us and we know we are full of sin. We can serve God freely and boldly. How is this possible? My goal here is to set us up for next week, largely. Well, we're not grounded upon our own merits, but purely from the mercy of God. And because of this, we know that God accepts our works, even though much is wrong with them. God says by the mouth of the prophet Malachi that he will receive the service we render as a father accepts the works of his child. Picture a child who is seeking to obey his father. When the father asks the child to do something, he will accept what the child does, even if the child may not understand even what he's doing. The child may even break something in the process. But the father will not worry about the broken object when he sees his child's affection and willingness to obey. But if a man hires a servant, he expects that servant to perfectly perform his task because he is going to receive wages and therefore cannot afford to ruin what has been committed to his hands. If the task is not done well, the master will not be content with it. But in speaking of the days of gospel grace, our Lord says that he will accept our service just as a father accepts the obedience of his child, even if what is done is of no value. He shows himself bountiful and kind to us by accepting what we do as if it were fully pleasing to him, even though there is no inherent merit or worth in our works. Thus we can have the freedom and the courage to serve God, knowing that God will bless all that we do for him, because whatever is wrong with our offerings is washed away in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we imitate. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good to us. So, so good to us. We are so ignorant of your mercies to us. We're so blind to our own sin. We are so blind to your holiness. We are so blind. We're just blind.
Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts of freedom and boldness to imitate your son. Father, to, to see the firstborn of many, not with jealousy, not with a desire to prove ourselves better than, as if we somehow even remotely could try, but Father, to look to the firstborn, our Savior, and recognize our need for him, the provision you gave us in him, that pleased you to crush him for our sake. Father, even though my invitation looks like the scribblings of my child on paper, you love it. You love it. It's entirely pleasing to you. As if it's one of those pictures that you can just stare at and a a better picture appears. Father, you see our work and you see through it to the blood of Christ. You accept us indeed just as we are. With everything that's wrong with us, with everything that we bring to try to make our works look better, Father, you accept us as we are because the blood of Christ covers. There is nothing that your blood will not cover. Father, I pray humility for us as we first see our need for that Savior. And Father, I pray for joy and our humility as we freely and boldly imitate your son. Thank you for bringing him to this earth for us. Show us. Thank you for bringing him here to save us. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.